Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CSAE Research Podcast. This is a series of conversations about projects taking place at the Centre for the Study of African Economies at the University of Oxford. My name is James Walsh. I'm a research associate at the Blavatnik School of Government, where I recently finished my DPhil and a member of CSAE. I'm delighted to be joined today by Greg Walton, who's an associate professor of psychology at Stanford University, and Kate Orkin, who's a senior research fellow and faculty member here at the Blavatnik School of Government, where she leads the mind and behavior research group in the Center for the Study of African Economies. Today, we're talking about wise interventions and their use in policy solutions around the world. Um, I've had a passionate interest in this for almost 10 years now, when I first uh, was working in policy and encountered Greg's paper in 2014. I had just joined the World Bank to uh, participate on the team that was making the World Development Report uh, on behavioral economics applications to development policy. And at the time, a lot of behavioral economics uh, uh, had been scaled around the world, but a lot of it focused on very standardized forms of behavioral economics that were kind of removed from social context and meaning. So for example, there were interventions that had removed kind of had simplified letters or had used uh, defaults to, to, to shift behavior. And what was really exciting about the World Development Report was that we were trying to, in addition to, kind of, to those kinds of interventions, think about how richer forms of psychology could be integrated into policy that took advantage of things like meaning, meaning construction, uh, social norms, um, mental models and schemas, and how those things could be leveraged to support uh, policy goals. Uh, and so, of course, this is a long uh, and rich tradition in academic research in a number of fields from anthropology to psychology to sociology. Uh, but one of the constraints around the research that are already been conducted in this area was that it was kind of like a toothless giant. So there wasn't really much work that we could find that showed how a policymaker might actually be able to leverage meaning construction uh, in, in interventions to support people and help them flourish. And when we encountered Greg's work on wise interventions 2014, a lot of that changed. We started, Greg's, Greg's work on wise interventions synthesized this approach for taking advantage of meaning construction uh, and thinking about how it could be used to help people flourish and to solve social problems. So now almost 10 years later, I am absolutely delighted to be here with him uh, and, and with Kate. Um, and I think one of the things to note about when the World Development Report was published, one of the, one of the kind of pieces of evidence that we found that was uh, most exciting in its application of the kind of work that Greg was doing was Kate's work uh, in Ethiopia on uh, using a, a style of wise intervention, these videos um, that were intended to promote aspirations in rural Ethiopia. And so I think having these two guests here today is just an incredible opportunity to think, to think through the application in kind of novel and innovative ways of psychology and in particular social psychology uh, to development policy uh, around the world and to think about it as a tool in solving um, scalable scaled problems. And to, so I want to start, first of all, uh, by talking to Greg about what wise interventions are, what the history of wise interventions are, um, and perhaps some examples that Greg has worked, that Greg has worked on uh, in kind of using these in empirical work. Well, thank you, Jamie. It's just a, a real pleasure and an honor to be here and to be able to have the opportunity to talk with you. Um, and I do think that there are so many opportunities in front of us to make the world better, make our institutions better, to serve people better and to help people flourish. So the, the term wise interventions is, uh, is, you know, it can be misunderstood sometimes in some ways. So I wanna just uh, say from the outset that 
wise does not mean uh, better than other approaches. It doesn't necessarily mean effective. Sometimes wise interventions don't work. Sometimes they're not the right tool for the problem. Uh, sometimes they can even backfire uh, in important ways that help us learn. Uh, instead, the, the word has to do with the use of wise and phrases like streetwise or wise to, wise to something. Uh, it goes back actually to Goffman, who talked about uh, uh, the homophobia of the mid 20th century uh, in the United States. Uh, this is Irving Goffman, the great sociologist, and how um, some straight people were, um, as he put it, wise to the humanity of uh, people who were, were non-straight. That term got picked up later uh, by Claude Steele in the 1990s as he was thinking about uh, his pioneering research on stereotype threat. And he talked about wise schooling. And what he meant by wise schooling was schooling that would be sensitive to the predicament uh, that students are in when a negative stereotype uh, is about their group in that setting. So if you're in a school setting and there's a stereotype that says that people like you are less able or less deserving than other people, uh, school should be sensitive to that and it should be built uh, in ways that help you uh, succeed and don't, don't raise that concern. Uh, so for me, what wise means is wise to uh, the underlying psychological process that's important in a situation. Um, and I, I think one of the uh, most powerful ways to think about that and what, what a psychological process is, is in this context is that it's wise to the kind of core question that a person is asking in a situation a question that is typically uh, reasonable. Uh, it comes from the context that they're in. Uh, it's not pathological, uh, but a question that, that is, is, uh, is threatening and undermining. So it might be that you're walking around a school setting and you see um, lots of references to people who are smart and people get praised for being really smart. And you're, you see tests that are ostensibly gonna assess who's smart and who's not. And then you might be asking the question, am I smart? And if you do badly on an assignment in school, if you maybe fail a math test, then you might wonder, does this mean I'm dumb at math? And that's a question that you're facing. It's a question that the context has posed to you. If you're in the first generation in your family to come to college, that is people in your family haven't come to college before, then a question that you might ask is, can people like me belong in university? Or is this just a place that, that is ill-suited for people like me where we won't fit in? And those questions uh, come from contexts and uh, then the problem is that they have this tendency to, to become true. When we start to ask that question, we start to see the world in a different way. And then through psychological processes, confirmation processes, and also through behavioral and relationship processes, we end up creating a world uh, in which uh, uh, that, that confirms that original question. And so what wise interventions do in many different contexts is they identify those places where those questions are coming up. And then they offer people better answers to those questions, answers that they can use to flourish. Amazing. And so can you, can you give us an, an example of uh, wise intervention that you have implemented and some of the effects that you found? Yeah, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd actually would like to just start with one that I didn't do, but I'm a huge fan of. Um, it's because I partly because I just I think the problem space is so interesting and important and um, uh, the outcomes are incredible, and I, I think it's underknown and underappreciated. And this is work by the social psychologist Daphne Bugenthal, who, who worked at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and she was doing work 
uh, with um, parents uh, who were demographically at risk for committing child abuse. And these were, these were mothers because these were um, often single family, single parent households. Uh, these were mostly Latina moms. Uh, many had been abused themselves as a child. Uh, they were mostly uh, low income. Uh, they uh, were quite isolated in their social circles. And what, what uh, Daphna Bugenthal realized was that for these moms, there was this question on the table, am I a bad mom? And there was another question that was closely related to that, which is, is my baby a bad baby? And like, it's kind of hard to say that question out loud. Like if, if you're a parent and, and you're asking that question, like that's really hard. It's a really hard thing. And so what um, she saw was that when mothers were having trouble with their babies, like say a baby was having trouble feeding, maybe it wouldn't take the bottle, maybe it wouldn't stop crying, maybe she had trouble getting the baby to sleep, it would confirm in these mothers' minds uh, the, these, these questions. It would seem to be evidence that they were a bad mom or that their baby was a bad baby. And so she worked with a state program uh, where they had social workers going in um, about 15 times over the uh, month six through 12 of the baby's first year of life. And uh, there was a control condition where the social workers provided basic information about training and goal, about sort of parenting and goal setting, uh, household budgets. That intervention was not effective. There was a, a, another control condition where there were no visits. In the key condition, though, the social workers went in and they were trained to ask the question, okay, what is the most, the most significant problem you're having with your baby? And mothers would say, maybe I can't get the baby to fall asleep. And then they would say, why do you think you're having that problem? And the mothers would often say these reasons that were implicitly or explicitly self or baby blaming, like I'm a bad mom, or my, ba my baby prefers you know, her grandmother, my mother. And then they would say, they would just ask, this was the critical question, they would just ask, could it be something else? And they just kept asking, could it be something else? And the mother started to entertain an answer that wasn't pejorative. Like maybe I need to try a different swaddle. Maybe I need to try a different bottle, perhaps. And then the interviewer would say, okay, great. Well, why don't you work on that? I'll come back in two weeks and we'll see where you are. Come back in two weeks, they'd say, here's what you said. Here's what you tried, how did it go? And what they found was just overwhelming. So they, they reduced child abuse, first of all. So mothers were less likely to abuse their babies. Uh, the mothers felt more empowered uh, in their relationship with their babies. The mothers were less depressed. I mean, what could be more depressing than feeling like you're in a power struggle with a nine-month-old and losing? The, the children were healthier. Then they, in a later replication trial, they tracked kids over several years into their preschool uh, years. Kids had uh, more rapid cognitive development. They were less aggressive. And mothers were uh, more likely to be differentially investing in those babies who uh, were the most at risk, which is, of course, an important thing to do in a, in a household. So I, I love that intervention because it, 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 uh, it brought up a question that was, that was really important and really central. It had this graceful way of helping mothers to a better answer and to become efficacious in their, in their very important work and maybe their most important relationship with their lives. It helped them in that role and then it helped their babies uh, in, their, in their development. Thank you, Greg. Um, 
my understanding of a lot of wise interventions is that they've primarily implemented in the United States. Um, and of course, the scope for applying these kind of ideas is global. Um, I'd like to ask Kate now, based on the exciting results that we've seen in the United States in particular, but in rich countries in general, what scope do you think there is for applying these in low resource settings? So I think there's a huge potential for this. And, you know, it was incredibly exciting to talk with Greg today. I read his work first as a PhD student, and it's informed a huge amount of, of what we've been trying to do in the, the last couple of years. So I guess just to give a bit about my experience, kind of where I'm coming at this from. Um, so um, when I was a PhD student, I was brought on to um, a collaboration um, between uh, Oxford um, and a local in institution in Ethiopia. Um, and that was trying to do a, a form of wise intervention in that in that country. Um, so the Ethiopian team recorded a series of documentaries of the lives of um, poor farmers in a very remote and isolated area. Um, and they recorded the stories of people talking about their own struggles with poverty, but also how they had um, set clear goals um, and managed to make small life changes that had improved their socioeconomic position. Um, and so the Ethiopian team had made these documentaries and we then ran a randomized trial where we tested the effect of showing these documentaries compared to a control group on how people made basic economic decisions. I mean, we followed up that sample over a five-year period and we find pretty amazing results given the scale of the intervention and the, you know, the low cost nature of it. So having a one hour documentary screening after five years, um, those farmers who had that screening have still invested more in um, sort of technologies and inputs on their farms. Um, they have higher levels of, of asset wealth. They've also invested more in sending their kids to school. So the kids are more likely to be enrolled. They spent more on kids' education. And then after the five-year period, actually more of those kids have, have completed primary school. So, you know, from a one-hour intervention, pretty remarkable and persistent results after a, a kind of long period. Um, and then subsequently, we've done some work with an NGO called Give Directly. Uh, so they're sort of place in the world is that they they argue that we need to benchmark any development interventions that we want to push against cash transfers against actually just giving the money to uh, the beneficiaries and we need to say that interventions can't only you know have some statistically significant effect they actually need to have an effect that's bigger than the effect of just giving the money straight to poor people um, and so we've run another trial where we've compared a similar intervention in Kenya um, to uh, an existing give directly intervention, a large cash transfer. And we find that, um, you know, the, the psychological intervention is, is a lot cheaper. It actually has a, a much higher cost benefit ratio after a sort of 17 month period than the cash transfer does. And obviously, you know, the cash transfer um, can lead to longer term asset accumulation and wealth, but it was just a way of benchmarking to say these effects are actually not only uh, statistically significant, they're economically important. You know, when you compare them to our existing best practice, they're of a magnitude that we need to care about and think about, um, you know, how we can integrate these into, into development policy. So I think those are just two examples and, you know, colleagues and uh, people in all sorts of different settings have been working on um, similar kinds of translations of wise interventions into to low income settings. And some of them have done, um, you know, so, so someone Greg works with, um, Catherine Thomas and others have worked integrating these programs into actual government programs. So big paper just came out in Nature with the World Bank um, where they were 
you know, they had an existing government cash transfer program and they tested the effect of adding on some of these types of interventions. And they find again that the, the you know, adding on that component improves the cost efficacy of the programs. Um, so I think there's a lot of evidence now that there's huge scope for these, these programs in low resource settings. And, you know, in some ways that's, that's pretty unsurprising because the exposure to many of the ideas and narratives that might help people succeed in, in richer settings is, is really low. So, you know, I think we almost take for granted that as part of our cultural experience, someone might have said to us at some point, you know, the goals and the goals you have, what you want actually is important, that has meaning for you, that matters. Whereas, you know, some of the samples we're working with, firstly, just exposure to the outside world and other people's experiences is, is low. Like in the Ethiopian sample, 15% of people had seen TV in the last year. There's a lot of potential for, um, you know, exposure to different experiences to have an effect. But I think also most importantly, you know, doing interviews with people in those samples, when you ask people, what are your aspirations? What are your goals? Some of the women said, well, what my husband wants. Sometimes it's the first time when people have thought about some of the concepts that we're promoting and trying to build up in these interventions. So it's kind of unsurprising that there's, a, there's quite a lot of potential for these interventions to have um, effects in, in those, those settings. And, you know, just finally to say many of the issues that Greg was talking about, you know, that, that uh, people of low status, um, either, you know, societally or economically are pathologized they thought of as lazy, as diligent, uh, lacking diligence, as making bad choices. You know, those stereotypes exist in poor countries just like they exist in rich countries. And, you know, poor people are, are dealing with those stereotypes about themselves all the time and have internalized them. Um, you know, so it's very likely that the same sorts of interventions are going to have effects um, because that same underlying problem is there. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think one of the exciting things over the past, you know, decade or so has been the growing body of rigorous evidence uh, with substantive outcomes that uh, Kate, both you and, and Greg have outlined in the examples you gave. I wanted to, so, so the scope is clearly there, but I wanna to turn to, you know, the more difficult question is understanding the constraints to operationalizing these ideas, um, both, you know, as, as pilots um, and in terms of scaling them, um, and a particular focus, you know, first on the challenge of bringing wise interventions, which are essentially focused on sociocultural processes to heterogeneous cultural contexts and um, bringing ideas that often came from societies or were kind of were built and emerged and these ideas that were built and researched in, in, in one context and bring them to often very, very different contexts. Um, and I, th I think this actually not only occurs, uh, you know, across national contexts, it might also uh, be a challenge when dealing even within a country, um, dealing with, um, you know, different cultural groups or different socioeconomic groups. Um, and so just maybe I'll kind of start with Kate, I'm just curious for your perspective on thinking about applying these ideas that, you know, really did come from the United States in, um, you know, low-income countries, um, your work primarily is in, has been in Africa. What, what are the constraints that you've found uh, to be most challenging and how have you thought about overcoming them? So I had an amazing conversation with Greg about this yesterday and just framing ideas I've kind of struggled to articulate for a while. Um, you know, I mean, we were both agreeing there's this real difficulty for this whole agenda because you know, we, can't, we can't do is say, you know, we're coming from these richer countries, we've developed 
um, you know, people in poorer places are just thinking about things wrong. You know, what they need to do is save more or take more risks or, um, you know, make better decisions. I think that's dangerous because it might provoke a backlash. It's wrong. Um, you know, there's, there's moral issues with it. And so I, I think that is a real challenge that faces this whole agenda. Um, you know, what Greg was saying, I think, um, is really about thinking about how we develop these sorts of interventions and what the purpose of them is. Um, and really trying to be quite limited in scope about what we claim for these, these interventions. Um, so, you know, I think, I think there are two characteristics that I think are important if, they're gonna, if we're going to succeed in adapting things um, sensitively in, in um, these lower income settings. The one is making sure the interventions are relevant, and then the other is that they respect people's autonomy. Um, and so in, on the relevance, you know, Greg was saying it's these interventions are about asking people a question. Um, you know, and helping them to think through a question. And then they're also not about the, they, you know, giving them an answer. It's just about facilitating a process through which they answer that question for themselves. And that language was amazing. And I, I hope Greg uses it widely because I, I found it really helpful. Um, you know, so in terms of asking the questions, in terms of relevance, that's about you know, talking about issues that are um, questions that people would be asking anyway, as Greg was saying. So, you know, how do I keep going when things are difficult? How do I, um, you know, make a plan to make my life better? Those are questions people have anyway. And that's the sort of thing that we need to be, to be focusing on. Um, but I think also, you know, in terms of relevance, really pushing ourselves as researchers to be foregrounding people's lived experience um, to be making sure that the, the um, narratives and the content that we present really resonates with how people think about their world and the kind of everyday struggles that they're facing. Um, so I think the relevance is, is one issue. And then the other thing I think is, is potentially even more important in a low income setting is this idea of respecting people's autonomy. It's one of the arguments people make for cash transfers. Um, you know, that you, you, you're not saying this is what you have to do. You're just putting in a, people in a position where they can make decisions about what's best for them. Um, and so that really goes to Greg's phrasing of not, not giving people answers. It's just about a, a process about um, how they get there. Um, yeah, I mean, I've got thoughts. I'd be interested to hear Greg's, Greg's thoughts on that. But I mean, also thoughts about what this means for the research process. And I think my thoughts here are quite provocative. Yeah, no, I, th I think I want to push it over to Greg because I've, I've heard you use the word asset-based approaches, Greg. And I'm wondering if you could help us understand what you mean by that and whether it's relevant in terms of understanding both the ethics and the kind of the, the design of these interventions. Yeah, um, I think that there's um, a lot to say here. And at a high level, I think it's important to um, understand uh, the complexity and have a balanced approach. That is, uh, it's certainly not the case that everybody everywhere is a snowflake and we can only do one-on-one -on -one clinical therapy to you know, help people with the psychological problems that they face in their lives. There are predictable you know, situations, those situations um, can occur across cultural contexts and across institutional contexts. Um, so for example, a lot of my work is on students' experience of belonging when they come to university. And, you know, it's pretty predictable that every, you know, kid who comes into college, uh, especially first-generation students, especially students from underrepresented minority backgrounds are gonna worry about whether they belong at some point in that transition to college. So we're not all snowflakes. At the same time, it's also important to uh, recognize the significance and the importance of what 
both culture, cultural diversity, and institutions, institutional diversity. Um, and so then, then I think from a development perspective, that is from a developing interventions perspective, it's helpful to begin by asking, okay, what is it that people are trying to achieve in a context? Like, what does it mean for them to flourish here? What are their goals it's to center that? It's not somebody else's goals, it's what are their goals? And then to ask, okay, uh, typically psychological interventions work as a, as a function of barrier removal. So to ask, what are, the, what are the worries? What are the psychological barriers that might exist here? What are the things that people are maybe fearful of or, or worried about? Um, and that might be something like, can I belong? Can I do it? Uh, am I enough? Uh, can I achieve? Uh, am I, um, uh, you know, would achieving threaten my relationships with other people? Um, can I trust other people? Um, and then uh, that's a process of listening for questions. And you can do that listening for questions in a lot of different ways. You can do that in open-ended ways. You can do that with uh, sort of uh, formal um, laboratory experiments, like psychological experiments. That's a question of basic research. And then you want to learn, once you've started to understand what the questions are, you want to learn, OK, what are the kinds of answers that might be legitimate and useful in this context? Um, that is legitimate, like it, it, it's a, it's authentic to that space. It can, it can hold and useful. That is, people could use that answer to guide how they make sense of their world and then how they behave in that world. And then, uh, just as Kate was saying, uh, with we, to, to, to deliver the intervention, you want to think about that as offering people that answer, not giving people that answer. You're offering people that answer. You're, you're saying something like. We've, we've thought about this. We've heard from other people. Here's what other people have said. What do you think about this? Is this, is, is this been true for you or could this be true for you? Um, how would you describe this to somebody younger than you? And so then you're, you're you, you know, we don't have the ability to like control somebody else's mind, but we do have the ability to give them something to contend with, to think about. And if somebody finds that answer useful for them, that is, it would help them flourish, it would help them achieve their goals, uh, then, and they find it legitimate in their context, then they can run with it and they can use it and it can change their lives as, um, as Kate was describing earlier with the, the work in Ethiopia. But that, that then depends on the nature of the setting. So there are some settings where the answer that you're offering isn't gonna be useful or it might not be legitimate. Uh, we use the language of, to, of affordances to talk about that, that interventions depend on the affordances of the situation. So for example, you could do a great intervention in a school setting, but if kids aren't learning Chinese, for example, they're not going to learn Chinese no matter what you do psychologically, right? So, so the, the psychological intervention is designed to facilitate people's uh, ability to take advantage of the resources and opportunities that are available for them, and resources and opportunities are not always available for everybody, and that's a huge source of inequality in the world. Um, a second kind of affordance that's really important is a more psychological or subjective affordance. So you offer people a way of uh, making sense of themselves and their situation. And does that seem authentic and legitimate in that space? So you offer people a growth mindset. You say intelligence can grow with effort and hard, and hard work and strategies and help from other people. But then their math teacher repeatedly emphasizes how math is about being smart and some people are smart and some people aren't. And this class is about figuring out who's smart and who's not. Well, that idea then is in a sense locally false. Like the, the, the teacher has kind of 
uh, discredited it. It's been, it's been un, unvalidated within that setting. And we now know from very large scale um, growth mindset trials and social belonging trials that in situations where uh, the local environment is um, making the, the psychological answer that you're offering illegitimate, it doesn't have benefits. Interesting. Okay. Um, I have a question here on based on what you what, what, what you both have just said. Um, well, I have two questions. The first question is, are wise interventions nudges? It strikes me that as you both described them, there are some key conceptual differences between a nudge and a wise intervention. And I'd be curious to get both your perspectives on that. The second question I have is whether wise interventions are best understood as complements or substitutes for standard inter interventions focused on you know, institutional uh, change, for example, or resource-based change, for example, you know, cash transfers or access to, to services and so forth. So let's start with the question about nudges. Um, Greg, are wise interventions a nudge? Absolutely not. <laughs> okay, great. Okay. <laughs> well, tell, tell me why, tell me why, Greg. So you can nudge an object, right? Like a nudge, a nudge has no uh, psychological theory. Uh, so it treats people as going with the flow and making the world flow better. And sometimes that's useful. I appreciate it when the cafeteria makes it easier for me to get healthy options. But then I don't take anything from that into any new situation that I'm in. Um, psychological, like if we're talking about people's sense of belonging or their aspirations in life or somebody's marriage or whether or not somebody's a good parent, like you wouldn't, it would be immoral to try to nudge that, right? Instead, these are things that we contend with. These are the most important sort of parts of our humanity. And we need to uh, contend with how we make sense of and process that, especially when it's difficult and hard. Right. And Kate, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I was applauding Greg on the, the podcast. I mean, I think the thing for me in these contexts, you know, why I found Greg's work so powerful was nudges assume the presence of the state. And in most of these places, there's, there's just very little you know, so there was this one famous and, you know, really interesting intervention where uh, it was about how do you get farmers to use the right amount of fertilizer? Um, and the, you know, they tried a range of different interventions, but some of the things that were, were most effective were, you know, making sure that you delivered it exactly at the right time when they were kind of cash flush, they could purchase it, um, you know, they could make sure that they applied it. And then, you know, to get them to use the right amount, you had to give them a little teaspoon so that they would put exactly the right amount on, you know, the very, and you had to have different sizes of teaspoons for different crops. So those things are, you know, they work, they had great effects, but I do not know a state that can make those kinds of interventions in, in the places where we're working. And so I think what, what is incredible about these interventions is that they go beyond the individual decision they're really thinking about how people are approaching a broad range of problems in their lives. And because they're about your fundamentals, if you can manage to shift them, the potential for them to persist over a long time period is, is quite big. You know, any of us can think about profound encounters that we've had in our lives with, with role models, with people who are inspirational. Those things stay with you for a really long period. And that's kind of what we're trying to scale up and approximate for people who may not had have had those those encounters, but it you know goes much beyond the the particular uh, you know one or two particular decisions, and it's also you know attempting ambitiously to have quite a lot of longevity. Interesting. And building on that, Kate, what do you think is the most effective strategy to be thinking about in terms of 
scaling uh, the availability of WISE interventions in especially hard to reach low resource settings. I mean, one of the things that was tough about doing the costing calculations for this, this Kenya trial where we did was, um, you know, just to get out to people's houses, um, you know, in a pretty remote, remote rural uh, spread out part of Western Kenya, the huge bulk of the intervention was not about delivering the videos or about uh, even about paying the field officers who went to people's houses. It was just about the transport. Um, yeah. And so I would give a very practical answer is, is like, we just need to use uh, infrastructure that exists already as much as we can um, and think about this as a sort of uh, cost-effective bolt-on, something that you know can give existing infrastructure content to use. So for example, in many developing countries, there's big infrastructure of community health workers. Um, so they they do a lot to give early nutrition advice, um, make sure that uh, you know, deal with public health problems, make sure mothers are getting vaccinations for their babies, those sorts of things. And there's quite a lot of evidence that they, um, you know, they, they, they do struggle to achieve take up of some of those, those behaviors. That seems to me like an ideal infrastructure that we could use to deliver these sorts of, of interventions. And then it's about making sure that um, the technology that you're using works within that that context so there's an amazing ngo in um, ethiopia called digital green that does uh, they have these little solar charged cameras that um, you know manage to project without having any electricity and you can use them in farmers training centers or so they um they're actually doing some work integrating the aspirations approach into what they're doing because they can show videos of you know, farmers using different fertilizers or high yield seeds or those kinds of things. And then you could see how you could just bolt in the aspirations intervention on the top of that. Um, and, you know, potentially that might enhance the effects of, of a kind of infrastructure that was reaching people already. But I really don't want to be the person who says we should be replacing existing development interventions with these things and we need a separate infrastructure. Um, you know, I think it's about trying, trying to work them into contact points that we have with people already. Right. What's your view on radios? Are you long radio or are you short radio in this radio? Um, I mean, I think if you can if you can get if you can get interventions that work, it's undeniably the thing that is reaching the most people at the moment. Uh, so Betsy Liva Palak has got some really interesting work in Rwanda um, around uh, sort of norms of of conflict, whether you know they're uh, affected by a talk show that they had of a sort of intercultural dialogue that they did on the radio. Um, so you know, yes, people should do that. Okay, great. Um, back to you, Greg. So I think the real question that I have, and that I'm excited, so Greg will be talking to the Blavatnik School on the theory underlying WISE interventions. And this is the area that Greg has really been working on, as I understand it, for at least the last uh, seven or eight years. And I think the, the reason why I think it's really important is that in this space, right, we have a kind of, we have intuitive thoughts about whether incentives are generalizable, whether information kind of provision experiments are generalizable. I think we have an existing architecture in our mind, certainly in social science, for thinking about how that stuff should work. Um, wise interventions are primarily working or fundamentally working through sociocultural processes. And I think the question that I'm still trying to work out in my head, and what I'd love your perspective on, Greg, is how we assess the generalizability of wise interventions. Suppose we get great you know, results from an, a field experiment that did a wise intervention. What do we make of that? How do we think about whether it will work across scale, across time, across cultural context, um, and even across platforms of delivery? 
Yeah, so I've learned a ton here from um, a woman named Beth Tipton, who's a statistician uh, at Northwestern. And what she uh, is a specialist in is um, understanding generalizability of interventions in education contexts in particular. It's a tool for um, drawing, in this case, uh, public school samples in the United States that will, will be generalizable. So the, the point that she's making, um, so, you know, as a psychologist, I begin by thinking about the psychological process, like exactly how are people thinking and feeling? Uh, how is that working? What does that do to how they, um, you know, behave? Uh, and then when we start to think about recursion and effects over time, we ask, okay, if people are behaving in this way, how does the world feed back to them? And I'm sort of very much in the space of thinking about those sociocultural processes that you're thinking about. Um, but then, and then I start to think some about, but then, but what Beth is saying then is that the, the, um, the like the random, you know, place that you begin by doing an intervention in, what is that representative of? You know, if you if you were to do that in a different place, some place over here, would that, would you expect similar results or different results from that? And you can start to do statistics that help you to define, uh, you know, what those spaces are. So for example, in the National Growth Mindset Study, which was a, a very large trial of a growth mindset intervention in the United States, there was a, a random sample drawn of um, American um, public uh, high schools. And the, the characteristics of those high schools could then be compared uh, to the characteristics of the entire uh, population of sites, in this case, the entire population of American high schools or American public high schools. And that gave you a, a, a B statistic, which Beth uh, developed to um, specify just how closely related the uh, sample population is. And, I, and by population, I mean sites, I don't mean people. Uh, to the generalizability population, the, the population to which you're trying to generalize. One of the really important things is that is that inferences about heterogeneity, especially heterogeneity within context, so like this kind of setting versus that kind of setting within a, a sample of settings, or heterogeneity of participants, like for example, female versus male respondents in a, in a given set of settings, um, that depends um, on the nature of that sample that you're drawing and the population to which it's generalizable. So if you've drawn some very peculiar sample, uh, heterogeneity that you find within that sample may not generalize to the broader population. So uh, there's a, a stage of research where we're really working at the psychological level of analysis. We really wanna understand what is the psychology here that may be very small scale work. There's a stage of the work where then we, we begin to transform that psychological wisdom into interventions and start to offer people ways of thinking and see if that could make a difference even in one setting when we can do it really well. There's a stage of the work where we start to ask, uh, can we do this in a more scalable form? Can we? Uh, are there delivery mechanisms that will let us reach larger populations? And then there's a stage of the research where we then ask, okay, so if we can do this in larger populations, where and for whom is this effective and where and for whom is it not effective? There is at this point, uh, really little value, maybe no value in understanding average treatment effects. The, the value is in understanding what is the magnitude of the treatment effects within an empirically definable um, uh, set of settings and to what does that generalize? To what settings does that generalize? And where does it not work? Because there are the, those are the places that will be informative for theory and will also be informative, obviously, for policy. And it's I think just just to add in what on what Greg was saying, you know, I think I think this question comes up for wise interventions. It ought to come up for many development interventions. And I think 
I think what it really highlights for me is that the, the randomized trial movement and sort of movement towards experimentation in economics has left behind a big part of what medicine does um, in order to uh, make sure that interventions are generalizable. So, you know, when, when medics come up with big public health interventions or psychological treatments or those sorts of things, they are thinking about this generalizability question and how they do the adaptation all the time. Um, and, you know, nobody's saying there's got to be interventions that work universally for people. Um, I think medicine's been really good at things like, you know, equal partnerships with Global South academics, so that that means that there's a network of trial sites all over the world that can test interventions simultaneously, you know, likely adapted, but for different contexts, so that whenever you have a, a, a randomized trial of a particular medical intervention, you've actually got already, um, you know, evidence on how it's working in different settings. But that requires, uh, you know, uh, investment in relationships with academics in the global south, equal partnerships, making sure that there's capacity for that research to be done in multiple places at the same time. Um, and the other thing that, uh, you know, the, the medics do that I think is important is really involving participants actively in all of the stages of the research process. So it's about doing focus groups, but it's also about the kind of advisory committees of participants who can, uh, you know, advise on the extent to which an intervention is acceptable, how it's being received in the local community, those sorts of things. Um, you know, and so th there is a structure in medicine that we've just... We, we just took RCTs and then we didn't take this part. And I, I think the, this, that's really coming back to bite certainly development economics. And so, you know, I think this wise interventions highlight that because they are culturally specific and you need to adapt them. But lots of interventions are culturally specific and need to be adapted. And there are other sciences that have figured out how to do this a lot better than we're doing it. Um, and I think it's, it's, you know, just raises a really big challenge for us. But I mean, to me, that that was so important in the process of doing the, the Ethiopian intervention, because it was completely different to how I would have done it if I'd been going into that context and doing it, doing it myself. So, you know, as a team led by an Ethiopian academic, he was deeply steeped in the anthropology of the area, as well as the sort of quantitative um, social science. Then, the, you know, the other two academics working on the project. Tongi Bernard, um, you know, was a French academic, but lived in Ethiopia for a long time, spoke Amharic, and then they worked with a local Ethiopian TV production company. And so the whole interaction of making the, uh, the videos and then piloting them was all done in local language. And then they made sure that there was a lot of feedback from the sort of people who were going to be receiving the intervention. I wouldn't have dreamed about half of the things that they, they thought to do. And to me, the, the overarching question this highlights for development econ is like, you, we've got to start putting a lot of money into building, um, you know, the ability of academics in the global south to lead this research. And I, I think that's provocative, but I think for this agenda's success, it's really important. I want to I want to emphasize that point, like that this is team science. And it's, it's like there's an explode, like, you know, when I started in psychology, most research was a grad student and an advisor working in a small setting, you know, doing a laboratory study. And like when we're thinking about the problems of the world and problems of, of upward mobility and problems of social inequality, that becomes uh, massive team science, you know, and the scale that fields like physics uh, sometimes uh, start to work at. And it also ought to have the, um, you know, very serious kinds of public investments into doing that really, really well. So to me, it's outrageous that as a global community, we were able to develop 
um, vaccines for COVID uh, within a year, uh, very effective vaccines. But basically, we did nothing on making sure that uh, doing the science to make sure that people would take those vaccines and would practice social distancing and would that mask wearing wouldn't have to become politicized as it did in some places. And you know, it, it's tragic when we have invested as societies in school systems, um, for example, but then kids are dropping out because they feel like they don't belong or they feel like uh, they're not smart enough. It's tragic, you know, when there are marriages that fall apart because couples are having trouble dealing with uh, a conflict that exists in that marriage. And they're starting to wonder, you know, does my spouse even love me? Like these are, these are structures that exist in society that are really important for people of inherent importance and important for upward mobility. And we under, we completely underinvest in doing the research that we need to do to actually uh, let people take advantage of those structures as they best could. Yeah. And I mean, I think the vaccine is a great example of that medical infrastructure I was talking about. So, you know, from the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, one of the reasons they could scale it up so fast is that they already had, you know, Oxford already had, a tr you know, trial sites that they collaborated with in Brazil, in South Africa. Nobody could travel. Nobody traveled from here. Um, to, to go there, but there was, was set, set up teams who could make sure that the, you know, we gathered the evidence about whether it worked in those populations um, and, you know, really um, uh, empowered, um, you know, funded structures that existed to make sure we could look at generalizability. And that took a, generations of investment from both local and international donors to make sure that those things existed. And we have nothing like that. And we needed. Yeah, let me let me give a, another example. I, I heard this example about a year or so ago, that uh, in the 19th century there was an increasing um, uh, infant mortality rates uh, because people were living in cities and food had to be transported into cities and milk would spoil. Science uh, fairly quickly understood what was happening uh, and the principles of milk spoilage and also the effective intervention of pasteurization, and then it took like 30 years for any major city, and I think the first was Chicago, to mandate milk pasteurization. Like how many children's lives ended because of that kind of delay? Like how many people in, in the United States, in the United Kingdom, uh, around the world, uh, don't achieve uh, their goals in life, maybe don't succeed in school as they could because they're facing these kinds of worries. These, this, is, this is unacceptable especially when we start to know how to, how to solve those problems. On that note, Greg, Kate, thank you so much for a wonderful discussion. Uh, it's been incredibly stimulating for me. Um, and thank you everyone for listening.